Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Heavenly Father, it is always a privilege uh, to be reminded of our need for you. Always a privilege to submit ourselves to your provision in Scripture. And so today we ask that through these few short verses that you accomplish great things in the same way that a widow who gave very little gave much. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Uh, A few years ago on a family road trip, my wife and I uh, thought it would be a good idea. We had to stop for the night and we thought we would stop in Las Vegas uh, with our family. And we, I know, I know, I was there too. Um, and, uh, but we, we were gonna stay at the Excalibur Hotel, which is this like Disney-like castle that's so whimsical. They have a kid-centered pool. They're close to some of the other family-friendly attractions. And we thought in our mind that we were crushing it. Things looked absolutely stellar on paper. But once we got there, uh, we had to stand in line with our already car-crazed kids for an hour just to check in. And then after we checked in, I made it to our room only to find that it was occupied. Let the reader understand. And so from that point, we retreated back to that hour-long line for a second time, got our room key, went to the room, went to the pool, found our kids wildly overexhausted and overstimulated by everything that was going on. And so as we went to go find the family-friendly attractions, which apparently no longer exist on the Strip, we got lost in a myriad of hotels, yelled at by a bunch of security guards as our kids wanted to press every light and button, of which there are many. And after eating an overpriced hot dog on a, on a stick, we retreated back to the room disheartened and dejected. Um, I have a beautiful picture of my daughter, Adley, uh, that I could show any of you that just captures the exhaustion uh, and the despair we had in that moment. And what we once thought was going to be the beacon of joy and hope was undone right before our eyes. If you were a Jew living in the first century, your beacon of hope would wisely have not been the Excalibur Hotel. But it would have been embodied and personified by three specific features. That was Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple, and the religious leaders. But if you remember a couple chapters ago when Jesus came into Jerusalem and descended down the Mount of Olives, it was precisely those three establishments which stood opposed to Jesus. Jesus wept over a faithless Jerusalem, rebuked an empty temple, and faced the challenges of murderous and conniving religious leaders. And as Jesus is turning the corner into the passion sequence, he is now going to begin to undo in reverse order those same challenges he encountered as he went into Jerusalem. He's going to predict the undoing, or to put in a biblical process, the fulfilling of those things. And why is Jesus doing this? Well, he's showing us the emptiness of our own Excalibur. He's showing us that there must be a better hope, a fuller hope than what seemed to exist at the time and what seems to exist as a beacon of hope for you. And what's unique about these next three weeks is that while Jesus is going to talk about the leaders, the temple, and Jerusalem, he's talking to his disciples. In other words, he wants his disciples to live life in light of better, fuller hopes, even while we exist in a world that is broken and which has reminders and hints of what our full hope actually looks like. Jesus is giving us a Yelp review of the place of greatest hope 
the place in which none of us will be disappointed and none of us will be able to leave anything besides a five star. Is that Yelp? Is it ten? No one does 10 star. That's obvious. That's like Jesus is the only 10 star. Everything else is five star. Uh, he's giving us the, the full hope and not the temporary outcropping of it, calling us to that which would never disappoint. And today Jesus is going to focus on the scribes. These were religious leaders who kind of stood as the embodiment of the entire religious establishment. And our main point is going to be this. Jesus fills us for the joy of giving, not of gaining. Jesus fills us for the joy of giving, not of gaining. Amidst the powerful religious leaders in the splendor of the temple, Jesus calls us to a poor widow. And it's this scandalous inversion that teaches us two truths today. First, we're going to see the danger of being seen by men. And then we'll see the provision of being seen by Jesus. Two main points, the danger of being seen by men and the provision of being seen by Jesus. And Luke begins uh, by identifying the audience to Jesus' message. He says this in verse 45 of Luke 20. He says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. And so in this statement, Luke is actually calling us to hold in mind three different audiences that are hearing Jesus' message. We know that beginning in Luke 19 uh, and not ending until the end of Luke chapter 21, Jesus is in the temple teaching in the presence of the people. And here, he begins to talk about the scribes in the hearing of people to the disciples. To, about the scribes in the hearing of the people to the disciples. And each of these people groups would have heard Jesus' words in a distinct way. But all of them expose at a baseline the danger of seeking man's praise. Jesus says this in verse 46, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long, long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And this is our first point today. This is the danger of being seen by men. And we're going to examine this danger from the three perspectives of those who would have heard Jesus uh, say these very things. Most pointedly and firstly, this was a rebuke of the scribes who were present, a rebuke of the scribes. And so he's leaning into this ongoing critique of the religious leaders, but I want you to notice what he's exposing about the scribes. If you just look at those verses, he's exposing what the scribes like, what the scribes love, and what the scribes will get in the end. And there are times where we're affirmed when people uh, tell us what we love. I love it. I feel great in my soul when someone comes up after I preach and they say, I can tell you really love God's word. That is a, a joy-filling affirmation. We like it when people tell us, oh, you, you must like to eat healthy. You really love your family. We want to be known as liking and loving those things. But as good as that feels, we also know the flip side of that, the paranoia and the shame that comes when people make public the affections of our hearts that we're not necessarily fond of or that we're a little bit ashamed of. I remember the first time on the school playground when one of your friends announced to all of your peers that you like Susie? Whether it was true or not, we hated that being known. Whether it was out of place or whether it was just silly, it made us feel ashamed. Or what if someone comes up to you and said, I can tell that you really love to be well thought of. We don't necessarily take that as an affirmation, do we? Or I know that you love buying nice things. Whether it's true or not, it pricks our hearts, doesn't it? 
And Jesus here, with divine knowledge and perfect accuracy, is announcing in public what these scribes' hearts whisper in private. What they liked and what they loved was anything that added to their public perception and praise of man. It was volitional and willful. It wasn't like in a casual sense, like many of us like salad. It was like like in a sense where many of us like like Snickers bars. Like it is this volitional, uh, hungry uh, word. And the scribes acted in a certain way, wearing certain clothes that were actually quite cumbersome with tassels and, and all these ornaments on it so that they would be well-received and well-respected in every sphere. And you notice this, the spheres Jesus talks about here, it encompasses everything, right? He talks about uh, the center of their love was lavish greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the Sabbath synagogue, the places of honor at the feasts. In other words, whether it was in the workplace, whether it was in the church, whether it was in uh, religious feasts or other places of hospitality, these men cared about how they were treated. They wanted, they liked, and they loved the praise from men. But despite what was given in free praise, Jesus tells us what is also taken in private, right? He reveals an even darker underbelly of the scribes in verse 47 when he says, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense, that's for a false motive, for a pretense make long prayers. And so as a general rule during this time, uh, teachers in the synagogue were not to be paid specifically for their teaching. And so being entrepreneurial, they found ways around this. And so they said, well, we can't get paid for preaching, but we can get prayed or paid for praying. And so what Jesus is probably referencing here is a predatory heart of the scribes toward those who are most vulnerable. As we saw last week, there is no one more vulnerable economically or relationally than a widow. And so what Jesus is saying is that the scribes were happy to go and pray as long as the widows were happy to pay. What motivated these prayers was not the widow's deep need, but man's great greed. And in pointing this out, Jesus makes a dangerous connection even to our own hearts. If the center of our love is what we get from man, then we'll do many things for you to freely offer that to me. But generally what happens is if it's not freely given in public, we're also willing to sinfully take it in private. We don't care about the cost. We will get what we think we need. What you think saves you, shapes you. And see, the praise of a a widow was worth very little. It didn't really add to their public prestige at all. They're not so much concerned about pleasing the widow. But what the widow's money can buy does have some economic benefit. It could buy more of those fancy clothes that other people, the people of value, then see and value and give you praise. And so we'll freely take from the widow their money, falsely pray for them, and then we'll turn to those who can actually help us and receive their praise. Jesus says something really stern there, doesn't he? The punishment of their crime is that in correlation to the abundance of their public praise, so too will be the abundance of their condemnation. Verse 47 says, they will receive the greater condemnation. If our primary hope is the commendation of man, then our only end is the condemnation of God. 
there are far too many stories of Christian leaders who appear to be doing the Lord's work only to be exposed that they were devouring others behind the scene. This is frustrating. This is anger-producing. But the Lord sees all of it. And there will not be one shepherd or one false teacher who, when they stand before the Lord, does not get repaid for their unrepentant sin in just condemnation. That is the justice of God. And we should not forget this. Now, what's interesting is, is this incredibly stiff statement is met in us with like this kind of obviousness. Like we read this, we're like, okay, we already know this. Don't be like the scribes. But this was like picking a fight with the heroes of the day. We, as modern readers, know the scribes and the Pharisees were bad, but for the original um, Israelites, this would have been like Netflix dropping a documentary that's exposing the charity you love as being the most vile, wicked, and corrupt organization. And this achieves Jesus' second purpose. He's not only rebuking the crowds, but he's giving, or rebuking the scribes, but he's giving a warning to the crowds. A warning to the crowds. We all need to be warned of the deceptive power of human praise and our own trust in it. To put it another way, we need to be warned of two things. First, we need to be warned to whom we look. To whom we look to lead us, to whom we look to save us, to whom we look to affirm us. In the church, in politics, in our dating life, we're all too quick to simply affirm that which is praiseworthy in the eyes of man, that which gives power by worldly standards. But the witness of scripture is that it doesn't matter how public their praise or how great their perception in the public square if they are defunct in matters of compassion and humility. Jesus warns us time and time again in the book of Luke that if your eyes see only power according to the world's standards, you're going to find it. You will get exactly what you want. But the problem is the power that you find is bankrupt to give you what you really need. It is corrupt. It cannot affirm us in the way we need it. It cannot protect us in the way we need it. James warns us of this in James 3, verses 13 through 17. And pay attention to how he talks about this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, the the humbleness of wisdom. But if you have jealousy and selfish ambitions in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. So there's false pretense, selfish ambitions. How many of us have had that? But now notice the the stiff words James uses. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly unspiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. When it comes to elections, fiancés, pastors, and podcasts, be mindful and discerning of what they love most. And where does Jesus direct us to see that? To how they treat the most vulnerable. To how they treat the least and the littlest. But you also need to not only be warned of who you look towards, but be warned yourself of what you love. 
Jesus speaks of actions in this text, but you'll notice that behind all these actions are actually affections. He's speaking about what we long for, what we love, and even behind that word devour, he's speaking of what we hunger for, what our stomach wants. I know you all came here today hoping that Tyler would talk about dung beetles. And so I am. Kids, we're going to talk about a beetle that rolls up poo into balls, okay? So, so this is why. Here's why. You know what they do. They, they, they have those horns and they roll up their um, bathroom time into a ball. And uh, scientists love to kind of be like, well, why are they doing this? And there's a really remarkable thing. Single dudes. Take a hint from nature. They take their ball of poo. They roll it up to their boo. And they say, look at me. Now, why is that funny? Because if you tried to do that, there would be many, many repercussions in this world. (laughs) And yet you have more of a chance of winning your sweetheart with a pile of poo than you do of earning God's favor with the praise of man. We can assemble it in our long clothes. We can curry it on our, our social media posts. We can clamor for it in the marketplace. But when you stand before God and you roll that out as the sign of your acceptance and of your goodness, God will be just as disgusted with that rubbish as anyone would be being presented with a pile of feces. Your money will not save you. Your acceptance by man's standards will not save you. The respect of man cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. My kids have introduced me to a phrase they picked up at school, and they say it all the time at our dinner table. They say, don't yuck my yum. Don't yuck my yum. And what that means is you may yuck broccoli, but someone else yums broccoli. They enjoy it. It's good for them. The Bible upholds as yummy what is yucky in the eyes of the world. The Bible upholds meekness over public meetings, humble service over lip service, and private purity over humble praise. Don't let the world yuck what Christ yums. Do not listen to them. This is why Jesus speaks to us in Matthew and he curates in in us a palate for what is truly delicious, blessed, happy, makarios are the meek. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says this is what satisfies so that we would be careful to groom our palates according to the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of man. It's a warning to our own hearts. And lastly, and very briefly, in turning to his disciples now, he reforms the leadership of the church. Jesus, in a sense, saying these scribes are going to pass away and there's going to be a new breed of leader in my church. We don't have the office of scribes or Pharisees in the church today, but we do have pastors and deacons and church members. And the nature of leadership in the church is not to steal praise for ourselves, but instead to steward the praise of God. Gregory the Great wrote in the 10th century to aspiring pastors, and he he said that a leader in God's church who is more concerned about the praise he gets from the church is just as guilty of adultery as the groomsmen would be who tried to catch the eye of the bride when sent by the groom to give her a gift. 
Isn't that a great picture? That means brother elders that are in here. We are shepherds, not saviors. We are servants, not celebrities. We are givers of praise, not getters of praise. And while it's been said that elders uh, serve the church by leading and deacons lead the church by serving, all of those are merely church members who meet biblical qualifications and are biblically recognized, which means do you aspire men to the office of overseer? Do you aspire, church as a whole, to the office of deacon? Then submit yourself to the posture and qualification of those positions now without a title. For titles given by men do not change your heart, but only the title of faithful given to you in Jesus Christ. Serve now in those ways and leave God with the rest. May you pray not to be recognized by the church, but to be reformed by the Holy Spirit, seeking to serve quietly, humbly, and without human eyes, but only in the eyes of God. The praise of man is attractive, but ends in condemnation, but the praise of God is effective to deliver us and to care for his church. And this is where Jesus now transitions in the beginning of chapter 21 where he opens with this kind of uh, contemporaneously. As this is happening, it says Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So here's now our second main point, the provision of being seen by Jesus. We saw first the danger of being seen by men, and now we see the provision of being seen by Jesus. And you see the contrast, don't you? That those big numbers, 21, often ruin our Bible reading. But what did we just see? We saw uh, scribes who were devouring widows, and now Jesus transitions to a destitute widow who is being commended by Jesus. And we know that Jesus is teaching in the outer courts here because there's this giving of offering. And in the outer courts, there are roughly 13 boxes shaped like trumpets. And some historians believe that it was common for an attendant to be sitting at that box. And when you would give, that attendant would announce to everyone the amount that was just given. So I have from last week our giving statements. Now, you, I hope you knew I was joking. There's a lot of people who just cross their name off the membership class. But, um, <laughs> but we laugh at that again. Why? Because we know how cruel that would almost be. If I did that, wouldn't our cheeks blush and our stomachs sink just in the same way it would if that schoolyard bully declared our like for Susie? Why is that? I have two reasons. First, it shows that we intuitively know that we cannot divorce our generosity from our heart. To see where we spend our money is to see where we spend our affections. It is seeing so much more than line items on our budget, and that's why we get queasy and self-conscious when we talk about it. But secondly, it exposes the paranoia that the fear of man will never be able to solve and only be able to produce. When others hear what we give, we might worry that they think we give too little. We might worry that they think we give too much and we're legalistic. Or they might see how much we give and assume that we make so much money that they now resent us and are jealous of us. Whether there was an announcement or not in the temple, 
Jesus announced it, didn't he? In the hearing of all the people, Jesus told us from where and what these people gave. And he shows us their hearts. Our bookkeeper cannot discern your heart by looking at your giving statement, but Jesus can. And this shows us that the problem of affection, what we love, and attention from whom we get praise can only be solved when we have confidence first and foremost between our own hearts and the God who created it. Only a fear of God can give us peace when we fear man. And Jesus' exposure here rebukes the corporate bankruptcy of Israel while also commending the individual heart of the widow and calling us to desire that which the scribes devoured. And so corporately speaking, this is really important because Jesus has been railing on Israel and actually he hasn't moved away from that in this moment. Jesus' words expand the rebuke that was just given to the scribes and he pulls into it kind of the, the general elite, the rich people of Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy, the law groups together um, three, oftentimes four groups of people. Sometimes the Levites, those who are reliant upon offerings given to the temple are included, but most frequently it's three groups of people. The sojourner, that's the foreigner who doesn't have a home. Uh, The fatherless, that's the orphan, and the widow. And the law dictated how Israel as a whole was to care for these vulnerable people. It was their responsibility to care for their own vulnerable people. And uh, what one of their first principles was that they were to give to the temple, which we see here. But they also were to not fully glean their fields. If you've read the book of Ruth, I said I called the book of Ruth Luke last week. It's not the same. They're two different ones, so that's good to know. Um, but in the book of Ruth, this is what Ruth goes and does in Boaz's field. She gleans behind his harvesters. So in other words, if they spilled their grain, they were to leave it so that these people could go and they could collect it and have food for themselves. And through the tithes given to the temple and through this generous act of uh, leaving things for those who would come afterwards, God's ideal life in the promised land assumed that the generosity of Israel by their finances and by their vocation would care for the vulnerable. Speaking of what this would be like in Deuteronomy 26, it's, Moses says that in that time, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow may eat within your towns and be full. That was God's ideal. So when Jesus points out rich people who have an abundance and a poor widow who goes on to have absolutely nothing right in their midst, it's meant to show the failure of the whole nation. There in the temple, in the place of God's very presence, were those who, though having an abundance, were found to be empty of concern and affection. Not only for a widow, but for a poor Jewish widow, one of their sisters who had Nothing left in her name. As the New Testament church, we're not called to uphold the law in the same way the Jews were. But even in our own body, our care for those who are truly widows is of deep concern to God and his church, of deep concern to our own functioning as a faithful and healthy church. James again reminds us in James 1.27 saying, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And here again, we see that biggest threat to generosity again, don't we? What is it? It's the affections of the world. And notice, he's only simply here talking about visiting. He hasn't even gotten after your finances or your pantry or your table. 
visit, honor, know, talk. But often they're crowded out because just like this widow in that day, there are more important people who can give better praise and be of greater public service to our own praise. But the Bible makes it very clear in the New Testament that believers are responsible to care for their own family, your biological family. That means if you're in here and you have a parent who is a widow or a widower, or if it's your aunt or your uncle, you as their family member are responsible as much as you are able to prioritize their care. Whether the government tells you to or not, God tells you to, to care for them. But then also, if you're unable to meet their needs, you're to go to your church. And your church is to, as much as they are able to come alongside and to care with you as you care for them. And we do that by prioritizing the family first so that the church can care for those who are truly widows, those who do not have a family or a support system. And the reason why such mercy is on the forefront in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that it's connected to our own identities. In the Old Testament, God says, you take care of the sojourner and the fatherless because you were once a sojourner and fatherless in Egypt, and I brought you out. In the New Testament church, Jesus says, you take care of the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow because you once were divorced, cut off from the covenant of my affection by your own adultery. You once were without a father. You once were a sojourner, but Christ came while we were enemies of God and gave himself for us out of the abundance of his mercy. We were once alone and destitute, but Christ provided for us. And so if we have community groups meeting this week, which I know there are many, I encourage you, so write this down. Look with your group at 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. And discuss amongst yourself how we as a church might better model and have eyes for this area of deep concern to the Lord's heart. But as I move from this corporate application, I want to focus on the personal implications of this text. Because in what Jesus is doing in exposing this, he's not just exposing the failures of Israel, he's exposing the realities at play in two distinct hearts. So what was going on in these hearts? The hearts of the rich and the hearts of the widow? Well, for the first part, the rich gave, Jesus says, out of their abundance. That is to say, they gave out of nothing more than their bank account. But the widow gave out of her life. How easy is it for us, regardless of how much we give, to give merely to check off a box and never out of the spirit of our life, never out of generosity, never out of worship, never out of sincerity. If these men were sincere about being generous, they would not have merely given to the temple, but they would have helped this widow who was so publicly and visibly depraved of any support. As Christians, we are called to use our bank accounts, but we're not called to give out of our bank accounts. We're called to give out of our hearts. We're called to give out of our lives. We don't give out of our abundance. We give out of our affections. And as I prepared to preach this, this produced fruitful conversation with me and my wife. Uh, Whoever's doing offering typically says it like, hey, if you give online, be mindful of that. And that's because if you were to look at my giving statement, you would probably say, Tyler and Sarah are generous to the church. They're great people. Um, we should give them a million dollars. I don't know. Whatever you think. Um, But here's the catch. We automate our giving so that it comes out automatically. That's what automated means. Um, So it comes out automatically to the church every month. I do this 
partly because I often forget. But I do this for a second reason. Because I know it hurts more when I sit down and I write out that check. Because of where generosity sits, it's one of the higher line items in our home. And I'd rather just get an email saying your bank transaction is scheduled than to actually have to face the fact that I'm giving to something in means that are stretching. I insulate my anxiety with distance and I actually rob myself of worship with automation. My wife told of a pastor who um, she once had who would only give two times a year. Uh, my mom is a volunteer bookkeeper here. Don't do that, okay? But uh, I just feel like I have to say that footnote. Um, but he only gave two times a year. And that was because when he gave monthly, it felt safe. I can do this. I can handle it. But when he set aside that monthly into an account and he sat down to write a check or to withdraw that bigger amount, he felt it. He knew he couldn't just give out of his abundance. He was giving out of his affections. This idea from where we give is really the main point of this text over any specific amount we give. Because as we transition to look at the widow's heart, we see that the rich gave everything thinking it was okay. They gave out of their abundance, everything's fine. That man could have announced how much they gave and they said, yes, yes, yes. This widow gave out of her poverty knowing nothing was okay. She had nothing left. But Jesus came and said, no, 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 that is the heart that is okay. That is the heart in which everything is fine. That is the heart in which there is provision. And what she gave was two small coins, two leptas. That lepta would have been 164th of a day's wages. So in essence, for us, it would have been nine and a half minutes worth of your two-week paycheck. Nine and a half minutes worth of your two-week paycheck. But Jesus tells us it was her whole life. It was all she had to live on. Now, we don't see in the Old Testament, or excuse me, we don't see in the New Testament that believers are required to give a 10% uh, uh, that the Old Testament tithe, but actually what we see in the Old Testament tithe, that was the starting point. There are free will offerings, there are generosity offerings, there are far more offerings um, than that. But neither do we see that believers are required to give themselves into nothingness. There are principles of wide stewardship here. Proverbs 21.20 says, precious oil, or precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. We can be sinful in devouring widows. We can be sinful in devouring our own finances. In other words, as a general principle, a wise man knows when to spend to the glory of God, when to save for the glory of God, when to be charitable for the glory of God, and when to to use our money other ways for the glory of God. But despite that principle, and despite that Jesus is not commending poverty as a rule in the church, I do think that much of the Western church fears poverty a bit too much. Writing in the 1600s, Richard Baxter says this, He says, and I must further say that this poverty is not so intolerable and dangerous a thing as it is pretended to be. If you read Richard Baxter's biography, you know he's speaking from experience here. If you have but food and raiment, must you not therewith be content? If your clothing be warm and your food be wholesome, you may as well be supported by it to do God's service. And here, church, it benefits us to look at uh, church in the West. It benefits us to look at the church that's growing in the global South where Christians make up the largest demographic of those who live in adjusted relative poverty. But we also see this from those countries. If you look at um, mission statistics, 
that the majority of, that there's a rise in giving to missions and a rise in missionaries being sent out. God does not need your abundance to be abundant in his provision. He needs your heart. He wants your heart and he will use whatever we give to his end if we give faithfully. As a pastor, I'm not sure I would have advised this woman to give this much. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? She didn't have anyone looking out for her well-being. There wasn't someone who went up and said, no, 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 give your coins. Give, give your two coins and let's go. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the grocery store and we're gonna pack your pantry full of food. Give what you feel God is calling you to give and we're gonna take care of you in this. She didn't even have someone compelling her to give. But she gave. Why? That's the most important question, isn't it? Uh, when you get to heaven, maybe you don't. I do. I have a list of people I want to go talk to. I heard somebody say they want to go talk to Martin Luther. That'd be pretty fun. Um, I want to go talk to this woman. I want to talk to this widow. Because we see so very little about her, and yet she says so much, doesn't she? Because I imagine if you could sit down and ask her why she gave, her answer would be astonishing. I imagine she, what she would say is that despite her mistreatment by the scribes, despite her invisibility amongst her own people, despite her limited and soon-to-be-exhausted resources, her faith in God was inexhaustible. She gave at the temple because she trusted that God would take care of her even when others weren't. Her hope was not in her penny. Her hope was in the presence of God, hoping against hope that the presence of God would make a way for provision. You see, none of us, this is why it's not about how much we give. None of us are saved by what we give. Psalm 49, seven through eight says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of a life is costly and can never suffice. The praise of man, the profit of your bank account, none of that saves you. The problem of sin cannot be undone by charitable giving or financial offering. Our salvation and our provision can only come from one single offering, and that is the offering of Jesus Christ himself in place of our sins. And as this widow endured the mistreatment of her fellow Jews, and perhaps even the shame that her meager gift caused her to feel as it was announced to others, she heard out of the corner of the room another voice. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more. Someone noticed her. Though neglected and ignored by all in her poverty, where they, she was called poor merely as an indictment of her social status, Jesus here speaks to her as poor, as a sign of how intimately he knew her. He saw her, he knew her, and he would soon give back to her far more than two lepta, but give back to her her life. She trusted that God would provide in putting in her coins but she had no idea the provision, the greater provision that God was working that day as Jesus saw and heard her. She gave her life and she received the commendation of the one who would save it. Little did she know that the one who noticed her in that courtyard was not simply going to open up his field for the widows, but he was gonna open up his flesh for all sinners to come, that they might all eat and be full and have no need. True provision had come. Paul speaks of this. The one who comes to Christ, what does your life look like? 
What is your provision? Well, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Do you see that? In the poverty of the Christian, we make many rich. Because what we give cannot be exhausted. In coming to Christ through faith, we have nothing. We consider all the riches of this world as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet in Christ Jesus, we possess everything. Dear church, to possess Jesus by faith is to have the promise of provision where we can say no to the praise of man, where we can say no to the assurance of the abundance of our wealth because we know we have a greater provision. We know because we have seen it on the cross He has won us, not to the abundant storehouses of worldly riches, but to the abundance of heaven. Jesus has paid our ransom, and we can never empty what Christ has filled. So let us not fear man. Let us not try and take from them what is freely given to you only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let us instead strive in a world where you are to be the next influencer, the next CEO, and the next star. Let us strive to be poor widows. Let us strive to know where true provision comes from. And let us from that give love, care, and worship knowing that someone has heard us. That provision has been promised in Jesus Christ. May we not be declared bankrupt of mercy, but let us lavish on others kindness. Let us not find joy in the praise of men, but let us find our joy in giving praise to the one who gave us himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you work a wonder in our hearts. It is such a seemingly trite thing to say and to pray, make us aware of all we have in you. But Lord, when you do that, when we are aware of all we have in Christ, every aspect of our life is overcome. Every problem of the flesh is deemed as small. Why? Because of everything Paul just said, that in everything we might have nothing, that in being persecuted we might gain our lives, that in taking risks for generosity we have a promise that cannot be shaken. That in saying no to man, we are not saying no to the hope of assurance we need that comes ultimately from God through Jesus Christ. So Lord, make us aware and may our church be radically different. When the audit rolls of this church's ministry are read, may it be rich with mercy because we have received rich mercy. May it be rich in praise of you because we see that you more than anything else are praiseworthy, that the making much of man accomplishes nothing, but man making much of Jesus makes sense of everything. So Lord Jesus, accomplish in us as you will, and may we be those who understand the source of our affections and of our attentions so that we might serve you with what you've given us. Amen.